Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. This episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. For less than the cost of a dive tank refill or a cup of coffee, you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. There's also some fun bonuses for patrons, so be sure to check those out at patreon.com backslash marine bio life. That's patreon.com backslash marine bio life. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Question, what does the shark say after eating the clownfish? It tasted a little funny. My guest today is marine scientist Laura Smith, and today we are learning about sailfish. Laura Smith is a marine biology PhD student currently hailing from Australia. In this episode, Laura shares her stories behind the scenes aboard humpback whaleboats, doing sea turtle research on the Great Barrier Reef, and how she found herself studying one of the most iconic fish in the sea. Please enjoy. Laura, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I'm excited to chat sailfish with you today. Well, thanks, Cara, for having me. I'm very excited to be on the podcast. I'm a long-time listener. I just did want to start, though, by doing an acknowledgement of country. That's something that we do over here in Australia. So I'd like to acknowledge the First Nations people of Australia as the traditional owners of country. I recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and future. Wonderful. That's the first time I've heard that. I love that. Really? <laughs> yeah. How often have people been doing that or how long have people been paying that respect? Oh, well, they should do it all the time, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> but it's something that I like to do in particular whenever I I present somewhere or I'm going to a meeting. And, yeah, it's just something that people should do to acknowledge, um, you know, Indigenous history and Aboriginal history of Australia. So, yeah, just thought I would start with that. I like it. Very cool. So I want to get into your story, but I'm really excited to chat sailfish with you today. So we're going to dive into your sailfish research right now. Why sailfish? I was approached by someone that had a project for sailfish. So I sort of fell into it. I'm not really a fisher person. I guess I'm more of a, a biology person. I actually caught my first billfish last week which was really exciting oh. it was a black marlin and I have a big confession in that I've not even seen a sailfish in real life yet <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm not sure if you're expecting that at all but I am actually traveling up north to Darwin next month so I'm hoping that's going to be my first sailfish up there they occur a little bit sporadically on the east coast of Australia so 10 years ago or so, there used to be heaps, but sometimes there's just not as many. And this year, there haven't haven't been many around. So yeah, hoping to try my luck up north and, and finally see sailfish in real life. But I've certainly read a lot about them now because I've decided to do my PhD on them. So yeah, if you have any questions, ask away. 
I'm curious because you said you're not a Fisher person. So this is a personal question. Why did you decide to say yes to this PhD on sailfish if this if you weren't initially interested in? Yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily that I wasn't interested in sailfish. I think like they're really really interesting and cool fish. So I mm-hmm. guess that was a big draw card. They're pretty iconic as a species. Mm-hmm. and they uh, occur around the world, so I thought that was pretty interesting and might have some opportunities for me to, and has uh, given me some opportunities to collaborate with people internationally for my project. And then it was more about like what I'd get to do as part of my project. Uh, so I'm doing some genomic work, which I find really interesting, um, mm-hmm. and it's a bit of a bit of a learning curve, but but yeah, I'm, I'm learning some new tools and techniques and doing some habitat suitability modeling as well, learning how to do that. So it's not necessarily the species, I guess, but it's just all the things that I'm learning along the way. Cool. So tell me a little bit about your genomic work then. What does that look like and what does that even mean? So genomics is when you look at the, the whole genome of a species rather than just parts of their DNA. So I am collecting fin clips from sailfish in Australia and I'm having people help me collect fin clips, so little pieces of their fin, to get their DNA. And I'm comparing the DNA of the sailfish here in Australia to other places around the world because, as I mentioned, they occur in the, the tropics and subtropics pretty much all around the world. So here in Australia, throughout the Indo-Pacific, over in Florida, there's lots, um, and then mm-hmm. off the coast of Central America. And so I'm basically looking at differences in the populations, both within the different ocean basins, so within the Pacific, so the Indo-Pacific, and the Eastern Pacific, and the Atlantic Ocean, and also between those different ocean basins to see if if there are differences there. And that'll help with management, because when we can define, okay, these are discrete populations, they, then they should be managed as one sort of block, or yeah, one stock, essentially, rather than rather, yeah, one as separate stocks, rather than one sing, like single global stock if that makes sense. Yes, absolutely. So okay. it kind of is showing the different pockets or patches or, I mean, cultures. We'll just call them cultures of sailfish that live in the different parts of the ocean and kind of showing that they should be managed in different ways, right? Yeah, because sailfish are mostly recreational species in a lot of places, but in other places they're fished like artisanally. So that's by... Uh, yeah, just like small scale sort of local fisheries where they catch sailfish and other species for food rather than on a recreational basis. But there's mm-hmm. a lot of conservation interest from recreational fishers because they want to make sure that those sailfish stick around because <laughs> they're, yeah, they're worth a lot in the recreational industry. Yes, they're a hugely iconic fish for many recreational fishermen. And it's definitely. I mean, catching your first billfish is a big mark for any recreational fisherman. And then when you catch your first sailfish, it's also a big check in the box as well. So sailfish for listeners get their name because they have their dorsal fin, the fin on their back is a giant, looks like a giant sail and it's really beautiful and they can raise it and lower it. And I've read that they raise it a lot when they're hunting. Do they use it any other times? 
I've heard that they have like a basking behavior. I think um, so sometimes when I guess when they're a bit tired or a bit cold, they will actually sort of lie at the surface of the ocean with mm -hmm. the sail extended. Yeah, I've heard that like more in northern latitudes when the water's a little bit colder, they come up from deeper depths and warm. I have heard that. That's cool. So that yeah. helps get some more, more sun on the whole body. Yeah, because they're actually a really surface active species. Not a lot of people know this, and I've told fishers this who've been fishing for sailfish and billfish uh, for years that actually they only spend they actually spend ninety percent of their time in the first ten meters of the water column or so, um, and they will sort of dive deeper for prey every now and then. But they mm -hmm. they don't like cold water. <laughs> so so yeah they're actually just in that sort of top layer of, of the water column most of the time and we know that from um, pop-up satellite tag data mm. so uh, those are tags that people put on their fish um, and their electronic tags and they will record information such as as temperature um, and depth so that we know sort of their behavior in in the water column and then how they use that habitat. Awesome. So they're one of the fastest fish in the ocean. They've been argued to be the fastest fish. Black marlin competes with the title Wahoo. I mean, bluefin tuna was like 45 miles an hour and sailfish were clocked supposedly at like 68 miles an hour, which blows my mind a lot. How Do, do you know how they collect that data? So from what I understand, because I have been trying to fact check this. Um, they, <laughs> I think that 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 comes from people, I guess, driving the boat next to the sailfish. And there was a paper that tried to model how the sailfish moves, and they sort of disproved that a little bit. So I'm not actually sure if they're the fastest fish in the ocean, unfortunately. And the other interesting thing is that they don't necessarily use their speed that much when they're hunting. So They'll hunt in groups, and as you mentioned before, they do use their sail, and they'll raise their sail to kind of herd fish into a bait ball, mm -hmm. and they will kind of slap, slash, or tap those bait fish with their bill to sort of destabilize or injure them and slow them down, and then eat eat those fish. But yeah, they they don't really use their speed necessarily for that. It's, I guess, a bit more sneaky. So I think the jury's still out as to whether they're the fastest fish in the ocean. Hopefully now that we have the technology to put things like accelerometers and that on tags, it would be interesting to see, you know, whether we could get some, like, maximum speeds clocked on those fish. But I think it's a bit difficult to measure. Yeah, I was wondering how they did that because... How do you measure speed underwater on a fish that moves erratically? They don't move in straight lines for periods of time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, well, so jury's still out. We'll have to follow up with you and see how that goes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, in so far as what I've read, it's not. It's a very tenuous num speed that they've come <laughs> up with. So. <laughs> We'll have to see. Maybe I'll put an accelerometer on a sailfish at some point. There we go. <laughs> see how far they, fast they really can go. Now I'm really curious. So you mentioned that their numbers are down 
uh, particularly in Australia, but I think worldwide, that's a pretty confident statement to make. What, why, what are some causes of that? Uh, so billfish are bycatch in uh, like tuna and swordfish fisheries so that's a particular reason but they're also very prey motivated so they'll go where the bait is basically and if there's a decrease in their prey then there'll be a decrease in those top predators as well how are swordfish and tuna traditionally caught are those long lines yeah okay so they get hung up on the lines and and that nobody really wants to eat them why don't we eat sailfish I've heard that they don't taste that good from some people, but then other people say that they're delicious. I, I guess they just need to be prepared in a particular way. There's also other issues because they're an apex predator, so similar to swordfish where there's methylmercury levels mm-hmm. and I think arsenic as well in the meat. So if you ate lots and lots of it, it would potentially make you ill. Mm, that makes sense. Okay. With sailfish numbers, so I live in a small town called Stewart, and one of our claims to fame is that we were named the sailfish capital of the world. (laughs) (laughs) And I I know we're not the only one in the world. I think there is at least one in Australia. Do you know how many places claim that title? No, I feel like it's a fair few because, as I mentioned, they do occur yeah in quite a few places and obviously in large enough numbers that they drive you know those big uh, game fishing industries in certain places so Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah that's funny yeah so our how we got our name was there was a sports writer in the 1920s so 100 years ago and he actually he was a he was an environmental writer too he's a like a local legend but he was a fisherman and he wrote to all the sports writers around the country and invited them down here to come in January. So who doesn't want to come to Florida in January? Cause it's beautiful here and it's freezing everywhere else. Uh, so they came and they went out with one of our local fishing fleets for a week and they caught a thousand sailfish in one week. And one of the sports writers went home and wrote that place, Stuart, you may as well call it the sailfish capital of the world. And that's how we got our title. <laughs> wow, a thousand sailfish in a week. According to the story. That's a lot of, that's a lot of fish. That's a lot of fish, <laughs> right? Can I ask, do you know if they were caught and released? I think a lot of them were catch and release. Yeah, because there's a long history of catch and release even I guess back then and that I guess that's one of the other reasons why we don't tend to eat sailfish is because they are so beautiful and majestic that there's just mm-hmm. been this long standing history of oh no we'll we'll catch them and then we'll release them again and that's actually part of the draw card and part of the sport is that people will catch and release these fish and so there's a lot of research programs that have decades of data so the the one that i'm using for my phd is the new south wales department of primary industries game fish tagging program which has data since the mid 1970s uh, which is Mm -hmm. amazing (laughs) and so Mm -hmm. That's data from from fishers that have caught sailfish, brought them in, tagged them with a like a plastic streamer tag, and recorded all their data. And yeah, they've been released again into the ocean. 
and every now and then we also get recaptures when people catch that same fish again and can record that same tag number and that data is pretty interesting but unfortunately like mm-hmm. that, that's quite rare that they recapture the fish whether it's it's just because the the fish moves so far and wide or if the tags uh, eventually shed or fall off right so here in the us i know they're considered highly migratory species they travel the eastern seaboard quite extensively is that similar habits in australia yeah they do but there are certain places in australia where we think that they might be slightly more resident populations so the gulf of carpentaria um, up north we think that they might actually stay there for a little bit they've so that's one of the places where we've had a lot of recaptures from that tagging data uh, what would be really interesting is if we could put some of those satellite tags on the fish to find out whether they do stay there or whether they go somewhere else and then come back um, throughout the seasons there was actually a study back quite a few years ago in the Persian Gulf where they found that those were resident populations, so those sailfish actually stayed in that same local area. And what the tagging data does tell us compared to other billfish and then certainly compared to tuna is that sailfish in particular don't actually move as big distances. Mm. Um, so they're quite... I guess, a migratory fish, but they don't move as far as we think. And so that's also why uh, looking at their population structure from, you know, a genetic or genomic perspective could be interesting because there is this assumption that because they are migratory that they will mix and interbreed, you know, across all these big areas, but that might not necessarily be the case and there might be pockets where there are populations that don't do that. Hmm. Interesting. Are you? Do you have plans to put a satellite tag on any fish during your research? Um, I did, but it's been a bit difficult to get funding to do that. So I've managed very mm-hmm. thankfully to get funding to do uh, the genomic work, but satellite tags are quite expensive. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of funding agencies are struggling a bit because of COVID. So mm-hmm. it's been it's been a bit tricky. I'm still I'm still hoping that maybe I can get some funding for that sort of component of my project. So that would mm-hmm. be really really cool. But yeah. yeah, how much are satellite tags? The pop up satellite tags are slightly cheaper. They're about I think two grand a pop. Okay. So you're still attaching two grand to a fish. So I think that's Australian dollars. Mm-hmm. And then the other kind, the spot tags, so they're the like sort of real-time satellite tracking tags, they're about six grand. And the other mm-hmm. issue with attaching satellite tags to billfish is that because they are quite fast, big predatory fish, the tag falls off quite easily. And so we mm-hmm. can't actually get months and months of of data much less like what would show us sort of interannual um, changes and variability and where they where they go basically so yeah and you'd need to attach it to quite a few fish to, to try to see a pattern because they do move so much right that's the challenge with any satellite tagging of any species is that the ocean just really isn't great for electronics period and then you attach it to a live animal and you may or may not get your data and it may not be very long and yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, so sometimes it's like, you know, you just throw thousands of dollars into the ocean and hope that you get some usable data back. Um, so I do feel a little scary if I do get to do it. But there's a lot of um, people really interested in that kind of work. Yeah. So a lot of recreational fishers and their organisations that are very passionate. And so there's actually a great marlin race. I'm not sure if you've heard of that, mm-hmm. where um, people essentially fund satellite tags. Like they race to see <laughs> which fish will swim the furthest. Yeah, pretty cool. If only we could do that with sailfish over here. That's cool. No, I haven't heard of that. Yeah. That's a lot of fun. So can you you track them online? Is it like a big thing? I think so. I did have uh, someone come up to me at a game fishing meeting recently and they were like, my fish won the Great Marlin Race. (laughs) And I was like, oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, so actually part of my research involves I guess it's mostly just because I like to do it talking to game fishers about sailfish and about what I'm doing so I've gone to quite a few club meetings and been out to a couple of competitions and it's really interesting to talk to people that that fish for these fish and I I also try to understand their motivations about about why they do it because I guess it's interesting to go out and catch a bunch of fish and throw them back into well they don't throw them back into the ocean they'll tag them from the boat but yeah catch them bring them in Uh, sometimes after like hours of of fighting them and then let them go again so yeah it's interesting it is a different mentality Mm. yes (laughs) that's funny what got you into marine biology in the first place i did my undergraduate degree in marine science and environment and landscape sciences so it was a mix of a bunch of different things and I always really loved all the marine subjects I did at university and I've always loved being by the ocean. I grew up on the northern beaches of Sydney before I moved to Switzerland, a totally inland country. (laughs) But yeah, just exploring rock pools and being in the ocean Yeah, I've always loved that. And after I graduated university, I moved to Brisbane and I was working for the Queensland government uh, in policy, so not, not even in science. And I just decided that I missed science too much. I started volunteering. I guess I was a part time casual marine biologist in my free time. I was volunteering for the Queensland Turtle Research Project and I got to go to Heron Island for two weeks and Mm. being so Heron Heron Island's um, in the Great Barrier Reef, being at the Great Barrier Reef for two whole weeks. And you were doing turtle research? Yeah, (laughs) turtle research. What was that like? That was really fun, I guess. I like what was your what was the research that you were doing? And what was it like living on here in Ireland? I was just working with the nesting turtles and then also looking at hatchling success. So like okay. other programs around the world, the turtles are tagged. So we check their tags and that'll tell us which turtles are coming up to breed for that season. Heron Island mostly has green turtles and very rarely, but a couple of loggerhead turtles. We go and check their tags while they're nesting and we will sometimes take measurements if it doesn't disturb them too much. Greens are particularly feisty sometimes, and 
then during the day we will dig up nests that we have marked down as hatched. So a few days after they hatch we'll dig them up and we will count the eggs to look at the nesting success. So empty eggshells are obviously turtles that have hatched successfully and then sometimes there'll be ones that are undeveloped or predated upon even. Every now and then there's some dead hatchlings in there which isn't particularly pleasant but yeah there's a lot of <laughs> turtles lay a lot, lot of eggs. And sometimes there's some live hatchlings still hanging out in there and that's always fun too. Oh, it is. It's, it is a lot of fun. We actually used to get the tourists, so Heron Island has a resort on it and we used to get the tourists following, <laughs> following us around to see mm-hmm. if there would be any live uh, hatchlings in our turtle nests. So. Yeah, I, I did a lot of sea turtle work and that was whenever I was excavating a nest. I'd always get like a little crowd around me if there was a couple people and are there any babies? Can we see the babies? <laughs> Funnily enough, they quickly lose interest when it's a really stinky one <laughs> and there are no babies. And because it, it is funny, I really learned how to talk to people about science and turtles and I got really passionate about it. But yeah, sometimes you're trying to talk to people about turtles and they're like, oh, there's no hatchlings. I'm going to leave now, <laughs> yeah. which is funny. Yeah. But there are other people that are really passionate and I guess that's why I want to continue doing this kind of work and that's why I was very interested in my sailfish project is that a component of it is working with the general public and telling them about my research and even if they don't necessarily understand some of the genomic habitat suitability sort of complexity of it all trying to explain that the results and what it sort of means in a way that that just general people can understand because you know if you can't if you can't tell people about your research and it's just published in a paper that maybe only a small proportion of people will read then um that's that's a little less exciting to me i guess yeah it gets lost in the scientific echo chamber whereas if you can communicate it effectively then it can actually make an impact yes and so actually on the topic of turtles i will be volunteering at the world science festival next weekend in brisbane and i will be volunteering at the hatchery so there'll be hatchling loggerhead turtles and i will be telling the general public about them because it's been a few months since i've seen some turtles so (laughs) so yeah i thought i would do that on my downtime from my phd why not yeah that's awesome You mentioned you also had some humpback whale experience. What was that like? Yeah, so I got involved with a really great organisation down on the Gold Coast and they go out and monitor the humpback whales during the season. So that's in winter time here on the east coast of Australia. And those humpbacks will travel all the way up from Antarctica up to the tropics to Mm. mate and to breed and then travel all the way back down to the Antarctic again but they do lots of really cool stuff on that journey so humpbacks are particularly surface active and will have all these behaviors like breaching and tail slapping and fin slapping and they have their calves with them as well on the way back down and that's pretty cute um Mm -hmm. so (laughs) essentially as a volunteer I got to go out on some of the tour boats out of the Gold Coast and we would record those behaviours and how many whales they were, whether there was a calf, whether there was a heat run 
yeah, if they were just adults or a yearling or a newborn calf, for example, and we would take photos as well because the fluke identification, so the fluke is the tail, uh, the fluke can we can use to identify the whale. It's a bit like the fingerprint, I guess. So we can record which whales, I guess, are coming up and down the coast. And yeah, it was just a really great opportunity to get out on boats and and see some whales like I've had some very magical experiences and because you're a volunteer I guess people treat you a bit differently you get more of a behind the scenes take on things you get to talk to people about whales and that's how I like learning as well because people ask you questions and you go oh I don't really know the answer to that but then you you might look it up or ask somebody or someone Mm. else might know the answer and that's how I've learned a lot of a lot of facts about some really cool species that way so yeah I really love volunteering and humpbacks and high rises is the organization they're really awesome they're particularly interested in the effect of urbanization on the whales because those whales are coming you know right onto the Gold Coast and that's that's an area that has high rises it's in the name and um and lots of development happening so yeah they're just keeping an eye on things and monitoring monitoring that they're looking at these breeding animals and seeing how these high rises may impact them yeah essentially so there's also an issue here in queensland with shark nets so Mm -hmm. to avoid shark people interactions there are shark nets strung up along the main beaches and Mm -hmm. that's really old technology so those have been there since the 80s and we haven't really changed that much about what we're doing and those shark nets don't run all the way down to the bottom of the ocean they don't run all the way across the coast so sharks could still swim you know underneath them or around them but the the main issue is that other species such as whales but also rays and turtles get caught in those shark nets and so that's very detrimental (laughs) to the local environment and quite sad yeah yeah Yeah. you think about the shark nets when it pertaining to sharks but yeah it it would have an impact on the other marine animals as well yeah Hmm. interesting so I love that you got to go out. I mean, it's a whale watching boat, right? So you just, your part of your experience was to go out in these whale watching boats and just observe what you saw. And yeah. so you had some amazing interactions with whales. What was one of like a highlight of one of your days on the boat looking at whales? There was one boat we went out on. I think it was the very first time we were going out as a group on this boat and it was like a super yacht. It was kind of like a party yacht. <laughs> Um, we got a behind the scenes tour from the captain he showed us all the gadgets and how he mapped where all the whales were popping up and that was pretty cool and then we went out and there was literally a newborn calf that we saw and so when they're born they're actually a pale gray color and so you can see them really well under the water and that was just amazing because this calf was like maybe one day old or something and yeah they're such incredible animals and I never get tired of I never get tired of looking at them (laughs) which I don't know it's it's one of those things I guess people that are very interested in whales and marine biology would understand but yeah 
you just you just never get tired of them and they're such when they come out of the water and you see them up close they're such weird looking things but <laughs> so amazing at the same time yeah I don't know when whenever we get one that just comes up to the boat it's mind-blowing honestly because obviously there are rules in place in that you can't approach the whales but the whales don't know those rules sometimes, so we'll be sitting out there with, you know, the engines off, but they might come up and, and take a look at us, and that's incredible, that interaction. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, whale eyes, there's something about them. They're very captivating. They just look so ancient and all-knowing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So the couple of times where I've had whales come up to the boat and do what's called a, a spy hop, where they will launch their body, body vertically up, yeah, that's just really cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. They're checking you out while you check them out. Exactly. <laughs> awesome. So you're doing all this amazing volunteer work. What prompted you or what made you decide to get your PhD? So as I mentioned, I spent those two magical weeks on Heron Island surrounded by, mm-hmm. you know, white sand, clear blue water, amazing corals, eagle rays, turtles, migratory birds. Mm-hmm all these shorebirds and those sorts of things. And then I came back to my desk job in inner city Brisbane (laughs) and I just felt really sad. And that was basically it. I'd been thinking since I'd left that I'd like to do a PhD and continue on with research. I did what is called an honours project. So that's just an extra research year tacked onto my undergrad instead of a master's. And I had a lot of fun doing that. And that actually enabled me to get the qualifications that I needed to get into a PhD program here in Australia. And so, yeah, I just thought, why not? (laughs) And gave it a shot. So I mentioned to one of my colleagues, so she had done her PhD on tiger sharks, which I secretly fangirled about and thought that that was really cool. Um, Mm -hmm. I said to her, do you know, (laughs) like, how do I go about this? How do I start my PhD? Like, I'm interested in so many different things. How do I find a topic? And so, yeah, even at that point, I was like, do I do freshwater? Do I do terrestrial? Do I do marine? But I think I knew in my heart that I really wanted to do marine (laughs) stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not to say that I can't go back now and do some more terrestrial things maybe after I finish my PhD or in my Mm -hmm. quote-unquote spare time that I don't really have. (laughs) But yeah, I I just asked her how to go about it. She had a few ideas because she was starting out supervising some students and she said, oh, I know someone at UQ, University of Queensland, so that's where I go. Why don't we go and meet with them? And she was like, oh, it'll just be a casual conversation. (laughs) Turns out it was a little bit more interview-like and I got a bit flustered and forgot that I which journal I'd published a paper in and everything. <laughs> so, but yeah, in the end, so my primary supervisor now, Ian Tibbetts, he agreed to be my supervisor and someone that, so Bonnie, my colleague, that she knew and she'd done her PhD with had this project on sailfish and so they told me about it and I was pretty much like that sounds cool let's do it (laughs) and here I am awesome I like that what is your friend studying with tiger sharks your colleague 
Oh, her name's Bonnie Holmes. She finished her PhD quite a few years ago now. I believe she was looking at a number of different things. She did put satellite tags on them, and she was also looking at things like multiple paternity in tiger sharks as well. Mm. Can they have multiple paternities in tiger sharks? I know sea turtles can. Yeah, they can. Yeah. Okay. And dogs. That was that was my fun fact on the beach when people like really kept when we got past like the cursory, you know, how long do the nests incubate for on the beach and what kind of turtles we have and if they're still kinda of hanging out with me, I'd throw like the weird facts at them and one of them was the multiple paternity. <laughs> yeah. Sharks have really weird reproduction. I don't know why. But actually, I think that's what sort of draws me to non-mammalian or at least non-terrestrial things is that stuff mm -hmm. in the ocean is really weird and we don't know that much about it. Like sailfish biology, there's there's still a lot of gaps to find out. Like there's been a fair amount of research, but because they're not, I guess, a species of commercial interest, yeah, there's still a lot to find out about them. So what are some of the bigger lingering questions then? Oh, that's a bit of a tricky one. <laughs> I don't know where to start. Is there is there something that you've been like, I don't know that, but we should know that? Uh, I had a whole list of questions that I didn't know how to <laughs> answer. Okay. But there's probably not one big question, I guess. Okay. Uh, a lot of people yeah. just want to know, like, where they go. And why? I guess one of the big questions, and it's the same for a lot of other big pelagic fish, is that we don't really know where they spawn, and that mm. spawning information is really important when they're making management decisions um, mm -hmm. because those are sort of areas that we need to protect, and that'll also tell you, you know, where those different populations are mixing. Yeah, that's important information yeah. to know. That's a big question. <laughs> and it's difficult to measure because they will just release, you know, their gametes into the water column and it's, yeah, it's not like they go and lay eggs somewhere mm -hmm. and then those are transported around the place and you get little juvenile sailfish. So it's really where people have spotted juvenile, like, sailfish larvae where they mm -hmm. They think that's where all the action happens, mm -hmm. but it's it's like an indirect measurement, I guess. Um, so they can't really tell for sure where and when it happens. Hmm. So sailfish do broadcast spawning. They they, they do. They yeah. Release their gametes into the water and and hope that they meet up. <laughs> yes. That phenomenon just blows my mind. It's amazing to me that that works, but it does. There's lots of critters that do that in the ocean they do and i guess they just hope for the best i don't know must it must work somehow because yeah we end up with adult sailfish so <laughs> they are fairly fast growing though i think they grow the most in their first four years of life and then their lifespan's probably maximum 15 years or so very cool you've had quite a bit of time in the field and one of my very favorite questions to ask is What's one of your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this could be a magical day in the field and you saw you had a great interaction with a whale or a turtle, or it could just be things happened and it makes a really great story now. So I probably have to bring it back to Heron Island because that is 
my ha true happy place, <laughs> turtle volunteering there. The most magical experience I had was snorkeling with about a dozen eagle rays. It was an early morning snorkel. I just went with one of the other volunteers because the other two were not not that keen on going for a snorkel. So we're like, oh, we'll just go for a quick one in the morning. Didn't bring any GoPros, <laughs> of mm. course, or cameras or anything. And we get in and it was just so clear. There were all these eagle rays around us. It was just an amazing snorkel. And I just have to hold on to the memory of it because because <laughs> there was no no photographic evidence. Yeah, and some of the other experiences I've had on there. So people think, I guess, that turtles are pretty cute and the hatchlings are pretty mm -hmm. cute. But as I mentioned, mm -hmm. sometimes they can be a bit vicious. <laughs> so wrestling, wrestling turtles, you've got to like sand a lot, I think, to be a turtle yes. volunteer and not mind the sleep deprivation. Because mm -hmm. um, the green turtles, they'll come in with the tides. And if that tides, you know, in the middle of the night, then you're up in the middle, <laughs> in the middle of the night. And you might only get mm -hmm. two hours sleep depending on the tide times. So things can get pretty ridiculous out there. And also, if you're not careful, you can hurt yourself. I did have my middle finger crush between the flipper and the shell of a turtle as I was trying to read a tag. The turtle was booking it down the beach. She wanted nothing to do with me. And I was like, I'll just quickly get her tag number before she gets into the water. <laughs> and uh, yes was probably a bit too optimistic in my hand placement. Those are powerful, powerful animals. Several hundred pounds. Green turtles are always the most lively hatchlings, but the adults, it surprises me how agile they are on land. They move. They do. And when they don't <laughs> when they don't want to be near you, they really pick up speed. So, yeah, I've had a few they were like, "No, nah, I'm having none of this." And so they get they get a bit cranky. I had one actually flick a flipper full of sand directly into my eyes. That was that was also a fun time. Nice coral sand. Yep. Mm -hmm. And they take a long time, green turtles as well. So if you're waiting for them to do whatever they need to do, you can be there for hours. And also if you don't want them to go into a particular spot, good luck luck trying to convince them otherwise <laughs> yeah sometimes they uh they would get up into the resort a little bit and so you need to dissuade them from from going certain places or try at least but yeah also so back to them taking a long time to do whatever they're doing they're faffing around in the sand a lot um sitting behind a turtle once and i smelled the smell and i was like oh it's a bit like a fart, but I didn't. <laughs> and so later on I Googled it and turns out that turtles do fart and that I probably did smell a sea turtle fart. <laughs> oh, that's something to put on your resume. Yeah. I was like, well, okay. <laughs> Just chilling out with the sea turtles, smelling their farts. Yep. Oh, my gosh, that's so funny. <laughs> They exert a lot of energy in the nesting business. You know, they move a lot of sand. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, they're also laying eggs and that takes a lot of effort. So, yeah, parts may come out. That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, before we wrap up here, I want to leave the audience with a conservation ask. What would you like for the audience to take from today and go forth and bring to the world? 
So I guess really hold on to your enthusiasm and motivation and love for our marine environment. Sometimes I get a little bit disheartened and disengaged from uh, some of the issues. You know, you hear a lot about climate change and plastic pollution and how bad it all is and sometimes you just want to shut your eyes and ears and go, no, (laughs) it's not Mm -hmm. happening. I don't feel like I can do anything about it. But I think you can. I have worked with and heard a lot about a lot of different organisations doing some really amazing work and I think there are shifts in the way people are doing things and looking at things, particularly with plastic pollution. I even a few years ago you couldn't buy products like bamboo toothbrushes or menstrual cups and and period panties and those sorts of things from the supermarket now you can, at least here in Australia you can get them straight from the supermarket you don't need to order them specially online we've had the plastic bag ban here in Australia it took us way too long probably about 15 years too long if I'm honest but it's happening and now we're also banning single use plastics So those are things that are happening and that's from people that have spoken up and said that, you know, this isn't good enough. And so I think it's really important to find that energy and that motivation to join them. So, you know, signing petitions, writing letters, and then also in your consumer habits saying, yes, I do want to buy these products because then they'll start stocking them. And that's that's Mm -hmm. just what I've seen and experienced. Yep. It's a great ask and, and a great message. Keep the hope and just keep doing what you can and control what you can and the outcome will happen. Yeah. The big picture can be overwhelming, so just focus on what you can do in your own world and it'll happen. Yeah, exactly. And keep taking pleasure from nature and the world around you and telling other people about it because that's when they'll start wanting to change their habits as well. That's right. Go for go for some in the ocean or a boat ride or a walk in a park if you don't live near the water. Experience nature. It's wonderful. And it'll do wonders for your mental health too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, Laura, this is really fun chatting with you. Thank you so much for being on the show today. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Hey, one more thing. Do you want to dive more into the ocean and marine biology? Need a little guidance on ocean conservation? Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources. We've got book recommendations, job posting pages, conference suggestions, and ocean-friendly products. All recommendations have been personally vetted by me, and I will continue to add to the collection as I come across cool things to share. Head on over to marinebio.life backslash resources to learn more. See you over there. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight for me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community one person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.